giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Tom Stewart. Hey, Tom. Hey, Ben. So why don't you maybe start by just giving us a little bit uh, of information about your background? Okay. Well, I'm a programmer and mm-hmm. a computer scientist, a kind of a, a lapsed mathematician. Um, my background is in mathematics and computer science. I work as a Ruby developer and a, a consultant, so I do quite a lot of uh, trying to help people uh, make better products Um by making their software better and trying to help out teams with things like, uh, you know, test-driven development and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in London and uh, it's very nice here. And I, you know, there are a lot of cool people who live in London who have interesting problems and who need help with making software. So I have a, I have a pretty good time here. And I've been doing, I've been doing Ruby for probably a decade now. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's uh, it's been quite a while that I've been primarily using one language and kind of starting to broaden out a little bit now but surprisingly many people are still using ruby for things and rails for things so i get to still do a lot of that that's why i mostly spend my time doing is helping people who have ruby and, and rails applications yeah it's been interesting to say so you've been using ruby for a long time it's been interesting to see you talk about monads and ruby right you know, trying to bring that interesting idea from uh, the other the fp world i guess into into ruby land right I guess part of the one of the things I've been trying to do over the last few years is trying to take some of those ideas from more formal or more academic or more computer science areas or programming languages and, and trying to bring them into Ruby a bit. I wrote a book a few years ago where I was trying to explain some computer science ideas in Ruby and that sort of naturally led me down a path of since I wrote that book, I had a bunch of offcuts and <laughs> bits and pieces that never made it into the book. And so like I have a big, mm-hmm. a big pile of like stuff that I want to explain about um, computer science and uh, doing it in Ruby. And so Monads was like, you know, eventually reached the top of the, the stack with that. In fact, that was the thing that mo- people mostly asked me to explain. You know, after mm. after I given a talk about some computer science thing, there was always someone who said, "Well, that was great, but um, could you just explain monads?" And then it's like, <laughs> "Oh God, okay." So yeah, <laughs> I eventually like decided to scale that by just doing a talk about it. Mm-hmm. So you, you you and you have a great talk about it, um, I, which I, de- I definitely recommend to people. And that's actually um, your talks are how we have met actually in the past. Right. So we we met at conferences, and I've always been a big fan of your talks, uh, and I bought your book and all that. Um, oh, thank you. And that's partly why I wanted to have you on today. Right. Um, but if you there's a so your talk was refactoring Ruby with monads. That's that, right. The, the one. That's the monad talk. That is it. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I gave it a bunch of times, but uh, yeah, yeah, of I course, it's just the one. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's absolutely worth uh, pulling up and watching, and, and we'll link to that. Um, but I've always uh, enjoyed the way you bring um, computer science topics topics into uh the ruby world i guess uh so we we most recently saw each other at bath ruby that's right uh, and you talked about i think what boiled down to like a graph traversal algorithm or something like that <laughs> well it was uh that was definitely part of it um that bath ruby talk was something that has been brewing in my mind for quite a long time and it was good to get it out of my system it was really um i gave that talk at RubyConf last year and then so that was kind of a rerun um but Mm -hmm. yeah it was about abstraction and mathematics really uh and one of the illustrative examples i used was the uh yeah was was to do with graph theory um but a bunch of other stuff as well and and i was trying to i think there with that talk i was trying to make a slightly larger point about how i think that mathematics is kind of um interesting and useful and 
really applicable to a lot of the things that we we try to do i think that a lot of people who are self-taught or maybe haven't had a more mathematical background have Mm -hmm. just kind of naturally shy away from those kind of ideas and assume that they're not for them but of course everything that we do uh with computers and as software engineers is uh, fundamentally mathematical whether we think about it in that way or not so sometimes it can be useful to uh to remind people of those you know that cool stuff that is <laughs> you know the the point of that talk really was to try and say that mathematics is just the study of abstraction and that as computer programmers we spend all of our time dealing with abstractions and so it was that was my attempt to just kind of uh, try and connect those two fields together in a in a in a way that might make sense to people not in a you know you've got to eat your greens and learn a ton of mathematics but more like well you spend all day thinking about abstractions and figuring out how to plug things together to make larger things so that you can understand complex problems in terms of these simplified abstractions and that's what mathematics is about as well i don't know to what extent i managed to convince people of that but it was fun talking about apples and oranges and graphs and uh, stuff like that so you know yeah so that that talk was called a lever for the mind by the way if you want to check that out Mm -hmm. and recommend it i I like how you sort of do this unflinching look and say yes there's there's math involved here but it'll be okay (laughs) like we're gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna walk you through it and i have you know nice slides and it'll it'll be fine right well i really enjoy that stuff like it's the um it's always been the side of computer programming that i find the most interesting and stimulating i suppose i think um there's a sense in which a lot of the stuff that we do as programmers, uh, the sort of day-to-day stuff can sometimes not be that stimulating. You know, mm-hmm. um, if anyone who has uh, done work using Rails knows that a lot of the things that people build with Rails are just kind of like web interfaces to databases. And so a lot of the time that work is not necessarily very challenging in in its sort of intellectual content. I mean, there are always a lot of challenges in terms of how are we going to make this work with, uh, you know, how are we going to deal with all the incidental complexity of making this application? How are we going to deal with browser incompatibilities and network outages and all those kinds of things? But it's not every day that you get to sit down and work on something that's like a really, you know, tough intellectual challenge as opposed to a test of your patience and stamina you know so mm-hmm. it's it's nice just to think about these these other aspects of computers that are a little bit more you know a little bit more intellectual and a little bit less wrestling with ie6 compatibility you know it can sometimes be nice to retreat into that little yeah. mind palace and you know have a little think about turing machines or you know computability or whatever it is that's you know that that's all the stuff that i'm really interested in and so i like to when when i feel like i'm gonna freak out because of the asset pipeline or whatever it's nice to just kind of have a little think about how amazing computers are and how incredible it is that they're you know (laughs) all of this awesome power that they're unleashing into the universe and then you go back to like trying to get that rake task to run or whatever it's a nice uh, a nice balance i think Oh, definitely. And I think that's so important to be able to uh, achieve a positive perspective like that from time to time. Like if you want to look around the world and, and notice how everything is broken and bad, <laughs> it's really easy to do. Uh, but it's not going to get you anywhere good. Yeah, it's a diff- it's difficult to strike the right balance there. Because on the one hand, I'm sort of fairly curmudgeonly by nature. So my my instinct is to complain about things. And also I'm British. So but you know, that, that also plays into my <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> glad you did. Yeah, you, you know, it comes naturally to me to find the negative side of every situation and, and make a complaint about it. And it, it's very easy to complain. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's also quite lazy. Um and I catch myself doing it all the time, and I, I'm I'm trying hard to not be so lazy, and to and when I do feel like I need to complain about something, to try and be constructive about it, and try to present. And I mean, in in a certain sense, all of the conference talks I've given over the last few years have been 
thinly veiled complaints about things, but I've been I've been trying to present them in a in a helpful and positive way. You know, so that talk about abstraction was actually triggered by there was I mean this is going back a bit now but I think maybe last year there was a little round of blog posts and tweets and people talking a bit about how you know you don't need mathematics to be a programmer you know you don't need computer science to to work with computers and um so that that talk was primarily it began as a sort of a slightly curmudgeonly reaction to that thread of conversation but yes. in the in the end i you know i hope i managed to turn it around and, and turn it into something constructive and i mean i do see a lot of people it's you know if you open up twitter any day of the week uh certainly the people that i follow on twitter you scroll up and down and it's uh, around about 90 percent people complaining about their computers and like oh man you know apple music just deleted all my tracks or you know chrome just lost all my tabs or you know my i just got the a kernel panic and lost all my work or something and and you, you do see a lot of um negativity and pain that are caused by computers but I really love them. Like I think computers are, are brilliant and I was lucky enough to be able to have access to computers from a, a young age. And so they've been like a, a real constant throughout my whole life, which I suppose is normal for, you know, millennials. But for me, I feel like I was extremely fortunate to feel like I was born into a world where there are always home computers and there was always, you know, BBC basic that I could write programs in and, and stuff. So they, for me, they sort of form a really really crucial part of the fabric of the universe and yeah i i just feel really excited <clears throat> about them like i am um, me and some other people in london have started this uh this book club called london computation club and we hmm. meet up meet up every couple of weeks and we've been reading our way through a few books and it's just really fun i really like meeting up with other people who are after a after a day or a week or a fortnight of toiling in the you know in the rails mines or whatever we still you know, we still want to get together after work to talk about, oh, let's make a parser, or let's make a, you know, let's make a compiler, let's make a, a simulator yep. or whatever. It's really, you know, I find it really, uh, you know, uh, it really enriches my life. I find computers really life affirming. And so I, I try I try not to uh, get too lost in that sea of like, oh, computers are terrible. Everything computers, you know, computers are broken. Like, oh, of course, they're broken, but they're also amazing. And, and hopefully they're going to become less broken as you know, they're less broken now than they used to be by some metrics. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully, eventually, we're going to figure out uh, how to make them less broken. Yeah, see, I love that you took that that sort of uh, frustration and let it turn into something good, a talk that teaches people and kind of uh, states your point in a positive way. Uh, this is something that I feel like I've stolen from Joe Ferris, our CTO, who, who has a, uh, shares a similar viewpoint, which is like, it doesn't do any good to complain about that stuff or to, like to, to talk about what you hate. Like, focus on the things that you do like and the things that you do think are good and just talk about those, you know, all the louder and with the more fervor and, you know, let people kind of choose where they want to go. Yeah, right. Well, I think there's, I think there's something to be said for both of those things. I think it's, I do, just to be clear, I do think it's fine to vent. And I think that that can be helpful. You know, it's, if it's, I mean, that's what Twitter's for. Um, why not open that window and just, you know, type in 140 car all caps characters about <laughs> how you just lost five hours of work? Like, that's probably healthy. But at the same time, yeah, it needs to be balanced by like something constructive. I mean, I think a lot of the time, the frustration that people feel with computers is just how inscrutable they are, like how difficult it is to understand what's going on. I mean, I feel that all the time, um, mm. you know, and I feel like I'm probably in, you know, the top 5% of the population who knows what is going on with computers. And I still find them very confusing and frustrating. And, yeah. and, and that's partly why I want to try and diffuse that a little bit by making these little attempts to open little windows onto you know that was that was kind of my hope with the the book i wrote was like 
by taking these ideas that people might not have been aware of and presenting them as little fun computer programs. It kind of, and yeah, all of the other stuff I've tried to do as well. I think it's it's just, I like to think that understanding is the thing that can kind of diffuse that frustration sometimes. That sometimes if you, in fact, in this book club, we've been reading this book, uh, oh, I can never remember the title, but it's, everyone calls it Nan to Tetris. It, that's not the real title. It's like uh, Foundations of Computing Systems or something is the real title. But that book's great because every chapter takes you, it's basically about building a, a working computer from scratch. So the, from the first chapter, it teaches you about NAND gates and shows you how to make logic gates out of NAND gates. And the next chapter shows you how to make higher level components like memory and stuff out of logic gates. And then the next chapter shows you how to make a CPU and mm. then and so on. And then it shows you how to make an assembler and how to make a, a virtual machine and how to make a compiler and eventually how to make an operating system. And by the time you get to the end of that book, it really brings it home to you just how much incredible engineering effort and complexity has gone into a, a computer and i find that that does sort of calm me down a little bit you know when something goes <laughs> wrong with a computer you can kind of think about well it's kind of a miracle that this thing is working at all so having a little i think the more you know the more you're inclined to be patient and be a bit more like oh you know i feel a bit more philosophical about computers every every time i learn something new i'm like oh wow that's amazing like i'll i'll cut them a break <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well when you have more appreciation of like how many levels of abstraction there are that are like each an order of magnitude more complicated than the one below it. Um, or it's just, I think it gives you more appreciation for like, okay, somewhere in this chain, something has gone wrong, but like we're using these just incredibly complicated machines and like this is just going to happen. Right. This is just <laughs> and, the way it's going to be. And we're all fallible humans trying to write like, you know, the best code we can and sometimes it doesn't work out and like that's a bummer, but oh well. Yeah. Well, it would be good. It'd be good if the code we wrote wasn't quite so bad, but I, you know, we're still looking for solutions to that problem. Definitely. Uh, so I've always been a big fan of your talks, and I'm impressed at their variety. Uh, so like you have a description. Let me pull up this description for one of your talks that I love. Um, talk, the talk is, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. To explain why, I'll touch on evolutionary biology, the imposter syndrome, Dunning-Kruger effect, video games, test-driven development, material exploration, beavers, judo, and Douglas Adams. Right. Which is like kind of an awesome little, like, <laughs> how could you read that and not go to that talk? Kind of a great abstract. Um, but I'm curious what your talk uh, preparation uh, and process is. Oh, wow. That's a good question. So I usually have, firstly, I, I have a, a folder <laughs> in, a, in a Dropbox mm -hmm. where I start, uh, where I'm constantly just, uh, every time I have a vague idea about something that might be interesting to talk about, I go make a new file in there. And then every time I'm in the shower and I have another idea that relates to that thing, I'll go and stick it in there. So these, they tend to gestate for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that talk's a really good example because the reason why that talk is so all over the place in terms of what's in it is because it really did grow very gradually over a period of months where a load of disconnected ideas that all felt like they had something to do with each other began to sort of stick together in my mind. And I, you know, I, I, every time I thought of something, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and sort of think, oh, you know, I should mention this thing. I'd go put it in that file. Mm -hmm. um, but I have a bunch of those, you know, I have a load of them that have never become talks because they just never accumulated enough interesting stuff to be a talk. And then whenever one of those files kind of gets sufficiently large that I open it and look at it and think, oh, there, you know, there's actually a talk here. I should actually do this. Then it will graduate to the point where I will, you know, try and write an abstract for it and try and submit it somewhere. And then if it gets accepted, then I enter into the 
terrifying and stressful phase of actually turning it into a real talk, which mostly happens in an outliner. I use Omni Outliner, hmm. um, and it's the which is the only way I know how to write. Uh, it's just to hmm. try and figure out what the top level structure of the thing is. So um, you know, I'll have all of these scattered notes of just tons of stuff. I will have. I'll do this sort of research phase and collect loads of bits and pieces of like, you know, screenshots from things I've seen or or sentences from books I've read or, you know, tweets or blog posts or anything that I think is related. And the first step in actually writing the talk is just trying to organize that stuff and move it around. And and I do that in an outliner and eventually just by moving the stuff, it's kind of like with refactoring, right? Like a lot of the time you don't know you know, you don't have a design in mind. You don't really know in the same way as with code, you often don't know what the actual underlying structure of the thing you're going to make is. It's the same, like with me writing a talk, I I don't really know what the narrative structure of the talk is going to be and how all of these ideas are connected and what it is, you know, how I'm going to present them. But by moving them around and kind of refactoring the structure of the thing, eventually they settle into this kind of uh, low energy state where it feels like all of this, all of the relevant things are next to each other. Mm-hmm. And then once I've done that organization, I then, again, in an outliner, just try and turn it into, you know, I'll write, I'll write titles for sections and I'll have, you know, maybe four or five sections for the talk. And then I'll pop open each one of them and try and put titles of subsections and just keep drilling down until it feels like I've got notes for everything I want to say. Mm-hmm. And then, and then at that point, it, I, you know, I, I open keynote and, and make it into slides, but I certainly don't open keynote until it's, you know, pretty late in the, in the day, pretty much. I know what I want to say and how the explanation is going to work, what the structure of it's going to be. And then it's just a question of the sort of grim process of actually like, choosing a font and uh, making <laughs> making an animation and stuff like that which takes me an incredibly long time but um because of that I, I try not to even open keynote until i feel like the talk is sort of finished in my mind and then it you know i have to start making it finished in reality yeah i think that is a really good process and, and that that organization shows in the final product really, really clearly to me like there's a there's an, a narrative arc and each point sort of supports the arc uh, and it, it's it's obvious to me that, that that there was a lot of thought that went into organization, and I think I think a lot of people could benefit by stealing a little bit of that process. I think sometimes people approach a conference talk like, "Oh God, what am I going to say for forty minutes?" and they'll just start kind of like blasting stuff out, or then maybe they just even start like giving it as like their first step, and they're like, "Okay, let me just try to talk for forty minutes and see what happens," and right. I'll, slowly, I'll slowly like like <laughs> just like put more pour more and more concrete onto those things that I've said a bunch of times now, and that'll be the talk. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you think it pays off i mean it is a huge amount of work but like you say i I think it i think it is important in fact i the other day i read a blog post um by russell davies at the the government digital service uh here in the uk he's written a series of blog posts about how to give good talks and and i read one of his posts the other day about how when you give a talk you're responsible for managing the attention of the audience he was mm. saying if, you know if you're writing if you write an article then people can manage their own attention because they're able to move freely around within the article that you've written so if your organization isn't very good then they can compensate for that by choosing which piece they read first and then skipping back and forth and stuff like that but then when you're in a room with people and you're giving a talk they don't have any control over the order that you're presenting things in and so and i think that's that's a really good way of thinking about it is like actively managing the attention of the audience and trying to think you know i can't just do a huge info dump here of everything that i know about this subject and let them pick up the pieces in their own time because their mind is already busy listening and interpreting the words that you're saying and so you have to be responsible for walking them through that thing and making sure that at each point 
you know each thing follows sensibly from the next thing and that you don't start boring them or you don't start like you say repeating you know th- those are sometimes the worst talks where someone is just go- laying more and more on top of an idea that they've already said it can you know you find yourself zoning out and not really paying attention anymore and then it's very mm-hmm. difficult to enjoy it whereas the the best talks i've seen are ones where there's a real kind of momentum in as much as mm. so they start talking and at each point everything they say you're always curious like well what are they going to say next like where are they going with this what's going to be the next thing and i think when you when you get when you can hook people like that and you know almost lead them by the nose through that little story you want to tell that can be really good so I, i'm i'm still learning how to do that but it's um it's a fun challenge and it's not entirely dissimilar to programming a computer i mean this sounds a little bit sociopathic but part of what you're trying to do in a talk is to kind of it's a little bit like programming a computer right you're trying to program the mind of the audience to you know you've got something you want them to understand and ideally you would just say the thing that you want them to understand but the problem Mm. is that's not how understanding works you have to take them on a journey so it's almost like you have to unfold this little a computer program in front of them that when that executes in their mind the the side effect of that program executing is the understanding that you want them to have and i i find it just as interesting trying to reverse engineer that process of what are the subcomponents of this understanding and you know how do i how do i break it down into small enough pieces that each piece goes down nice and easily but by the time you've plugged them all together now you understand the thing it's it's no different from trying to teach a computer how to uh, do something although it is different because humans are different but you know it's yeah yeah it, it tickles the same part of my brain as you know trying to teach a computer how to do something i think that's so interesting i never thought of it that way i really like that uh, that angle on it Today's podcast is brought to you and me and all of us and everyone we know by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean provides simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers for as little as $5 per month. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I can't remember to take backups when I should. And that's why DigitalOcean has auto backups and snapshots to allow you to easily clone and deploy servers. Even Tom wouldn't lose data on DigitalOcean. Actually, Tom's never lost data. What am I talking about? You can deploy servers in regions all over the world with gigabit speeds and 99.99% uptime, which is several nines, probably more nines than anyone needs, more nines than I need. The servers can have up to 20 CPUs, 64 gig of RAM, 640 gig of SSD hard drive space. That's pretty awesome. That's a lot. That's fast. That's many CPU'd. That's much rammed. One-click install for apps like Django, Docker, Drupal, LAMP, GitLab, MediaWiki. These are almost in alphabetical order, but not quite. WordPress, Ghost, Magento, OwnCloud. OwnCloud? You can have your own cloud, it sounds like. You can put a cloud in the cloud on DigitalOcean. There's a new tagline. They should hire me for this. I can do this full-time. It's easy to get started. You can deploy in as little as 55 seconds. And if it goes even one second over, you can email me and let me know. There's an active community, there's a lot of tutorials, there's an active forum, so if you need help, someone is nearby. But yeah, you should check them out. And if you do, if you do head over to digitalocean.com to learn more, when you sign up, I want to ask you to use the code GIANTROBOTS with a capital G and a capital R, a giant G, a giant R, at checkout for a $10 credit towards your new account. So thank you to DigitalOcean for supporting this show. Uh, one thing that you said that I want to touch on is um, you feel like the best speakers kind of gets you into this point where you you can't wait to hear the next thing they're going to say and it feels like it flows sort of logically and i have a little trick for that which is if you want it to feel like kind of like a story you can actually just tell a story 
Right. Like stories make amazing talk. One of my favorite talks is Russ Olson's talk uh, to the moon. Oh yeah. Have you seen this? Yeah, I have. Yeah, and so for those that haven't, it's it's a dis- it's discussion of the first time the first time we walked on the moon. Yeah, that, that must hmm. be what it was. Yeah, and it's you know starts off like you know the rockets on the pad or you know it, the rockets not even on the pad yet. You know they're like trying to build the rockets, and then you know the, the final step is you know we're on the moon. Yeah, um, and it's it, it's an amazing amazing talk. Um, but I think there's a little bit of, not like a cheat, but like there's a there's an advantage built in, which is it is a story, and so like you're like okay, and then what's going to happen, and then this happens, and then this happens, and so uh, if you can. I've, I've I've leaned on that in, in past talks where it's like and now and now I'm just going to tell a five minute story and people we're just as humans we're wired to really enjoy stories. Yeah, I think that's true. It's it's kind of a it's kind of an exploit, right? Like you say, yep. it's kind of it's kind of built into uh built into our brains. Mm-hmm. And I think there are probably a lot of things like that where the you know if I if I knew more about human psychology, I might be able to. Uh, <laughs> Might be able to, you know, trick people in ten different ways, but yeah, yeah right, like, exactly. Like, like you say, storytelling is a good way to provide that uh, that momentum. If you if you walk up to give a talk and the first thing you say is, "I'd like to start with a story," people are like, "Ooh, okay." <laughs> like that's like the, as opposed to like, uh, "Here's where I work and we're hiring, by the way," and yada yada yada. Yeah, that's one of my. Um, that's actually one of my bugbears. I I used to be yeah. As I, as I'm getting older, I'm getting more curmudgeonly, and now that's the thing where. I've seen. I feel like I've seen a lot of conference talks now, and now when when a co- when a talk begins and the first thing that happens is five minutes of here's who I am and here's where I work, it's just that little voice in the back of your brain going like, no one cares. Like yeah. to, you know, well that's that's unfair. You know, people do care, but at the same time, that's not what you're here to talk about, right? If, right. if you do your talk, if it's interesting and I want to know more about you, I'll go check you out on Twitter, right? Of course. Um, that's yeah, just, um, I read a blog post called "Kill Your Introduction," which is basically that. Yeah, I've been I've been trying to. I haven't seen that post, but that's um, that definitely resonates with me. I've been trying to. Every time I give a talk, I try. So when I when I started giving talks, I always used to have a slide at the beginning that said who I was and you know why I'm here and and why I'm talking and stuff. And then that's gradually that shrunk down to just putting my uh, my name and Twitter handle on the on the title slide. And the last few talks I've given, I haven't even done that. Like my title slide is just the title of the talk. And and usually a URL where people can go to see the transcripts and stuff because I've I always try to write talks up so that there's a written version for people who don't want to or can't watch the video. Yep, uh, which is I think very important, but it's also a lot of work and it's frustrated me in the past where I've done a huge amount of work to write something up and then you realize that people are finding the talk on YouTube and. There's no indication, you know, I can't control the way that videos get presented on conference sites or on YouTube or whatever. So there's yeah. no there's no way of like, particularly if it's on, say, a Confreaks or something, there's, there's literally no way that I can put something there that says, you know, FYI, there's a write-up of this if you want to see it. So now I've started, you know, title slide is just title of the talk, URL where you can find the not yet existent write-up. Oh, so if, if, you, if you actually go to that URL, you know, as I'm giving the talk, it'll just be a thing that says, this is a placeholder for, you know, the eventual write-up of this talk. But then hopefully once it escapes into the wild and people, if people find it, then it says right there on the first slide that there's a you know a, a write up online. So yeah, so that's one thing I wanted to talk about is that you you do these full transcripts with you know table of contents linked into you know deep linked into the topics and yeah. you know with the screenshots and it's it's I'm sure it's reworked from the original transcript, but it's basically like you know you're you're reading the talk instead, um, and that's such a smart idea. Like this is something that I I don't do, uh, but I think it's so nice when you put this much work into a talk to have like a final thing that's on your site under your control. You know, you can come back and edit it. And people that can't watch the video can, you know, skim it. It's Google knows about it. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a smart thing. 
Well, that's the thing. I think it is. It has so many wins. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, primarily it's very useful to people who have accessibility issues with video, whatever those might be. And that's mm-hmm. that's not just to do with uh, people who are partially sighted or hard of hearing, but also people who just are in an environment where they can't watch videos. You know, if you're at work uh, and you you know you don't have headphones or, you know, it's just not socially acceptable to watch a video for 40 minutes or whatever, I think there are a huge number of people who just aren't in a position to be able to sit there and watch a video for that, that long. And like you say, I think one of the things that does frustrate me about video only content is just how hard it is to know whether it's worth the investment of time mm-hmm. because you land on a page and you can see from the the thing that it's like oh this is 38 minutes um if i watch this am i going to is it going to be interesting am i going to learn something from it or is it just going to be stuff i already know or is it going to be stuff that i don't know but that i already can tell i'm not interested in mm-hmm. and so i like to think that there are people in the world who when they see that there's a transcript they just kind of scrub through it and be like, oh, I, uh, you know, I see there's a section about this and, oh, I can see there's going to be like a cool diagram or an animation and I can see, oh, there's a little bit of maths there and there's a little bit, oh, he's going to go, he's going to talk about Douglas Adams for a bit or whatever. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I just hope that even people who will watch the video, it, it functions as, like you say, Google can find it, but also, you know, even people who've directly come to it, they can, it's, you're providing people with a lot more information with which they can you know make an informed decision about whether they're gonna watch the thing and even i did a i recorded one episode of a podcast it was so much work i'm i'm not i haven't done another one but you know the one episode of the podcast i made most of the work you know it took two hours to record but then it took me several days to transcribe it and you know have a have a full transcript but like Mm. Again, I mean, who's going to sit down and listen to like an hour and a half of me talking to someone else unless they can actually look at what we're going to be talking about? Because otherwise, it's like it's just asking people to take a gamble that, you know, an hour and a half of their time is going to be worthwhile. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're Sandy Metz or something, you can get away with it. But if you're me, you really need to uh, you really need to sell this stuff so that people feel like there's a reason. Or you can just come on an established podcast that people will listen to uh, serially anyway. <laughs> right. So, right. Okay. So, yeah. So, I need to find myself an uncritical audience of uh, mindless mindless consumers. Whoa. whoa, whoa. <laughs> you cannot come on the podcast and trash the audience. That's, that's rule number one. No, I think that's a, I think that's a smart idea. So, this is, this is working out pretty well. Right. Exactly. And you don't even have to make, write a transcript for this one. No. Excellent. That's actually something we've we've looked into is to getting these the podcast transcribed. Like I actually would love to have that, but we certainly, like you said, it's very time consuming to do yourself, and it seems like the outsourced things are not super cheap. And then even when you do them, they require a lot of correction. That's the experience I had. I, I tried paying a couple of services to do transcripts for me, and they were. It doesn't help that it's always technical. You know, right, when exactly. I, yeah. um, if it was a uh, normal speech, uh, then maybe that would be different. But yeah. when you're, when you're trying to, and especially, you know, those transcription services are always either very expensive, in which case I guess you're paying for, you know, very highly trained, uh, I don't know what the word is for transcription people, but you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're paying people who, where it's their only job and they've like, you know, gone to college for it mm. or you the services that are more affordable i imagine it's just sort of part-time people you know people who are doing it for a bit of cash on the side and mm-hmm. they're not necessarily trained in transcription and yeah they, they get a lot of stuff wrong and the, the other thing it doesn't really apply to podcasts but certainly the transcripts of the talks i found it's a huge amount of work just to even when i've done the transcript and i've cleaned it up and taken out all the ums and ers and you know punctuated it properly there's still quite a step from that cleaned up transcript to something that reads coherently as mm. an article. It's a different medium. Mm-hmm. So I, I often have to do quite a lot of work to just go in and, and say, well, you know, 
this stuff that made sense when I was talking in front of slides, it really needs more detail or less detail, or really it would make more sense now I look at it again if the explanation was in a different order, or if actually if I I need to have a segue that connects this thing to this thing, or you know stuff like that. So I often spend a lot of time not just doing the transcript, but also not rewriting, but effectively editing the content to make it more appropriate for a blog post instead of just, you know, I don't want it to just be here is a literal record of the words that came out of my mouth. I want it to be here is a, you know, I've ported it to a different medium and that's involved making a bunch of changes to make it more palatable to someone who's reading. Yeah, yeah. So I'm familiar with this thing of, of needing to sort of clean it up because I interviewed uh, Tom Lehman, who's the CEO of Genius.com. Mm-hmm. And they ended up getting that interview transcribed so they could put it on the site and annotate it. And suddenly I learned that I use the word like way too often. <laughs> right. Like it's, it's, it's hundreds of times in the document and it's just like, oh my, this is, this is terrible. Let's never transcribe this again. I don't want to know these things. Yeah, there's nothing. Uh, it's not, I don't think it's very good for one's ego to ever like, oh, see, I'm doing it, <laughs> to, to ever have to read a transcript of the way you've spoken or watch a video. I mean, this is a painful thing of like, I always try to watch back videos of talks I've given and it really is very painful. I don't, mm-hmm. enjo- I don't enjoy hearing my own voice or watching myself talk. I find it very embarrassing, but Mm -hmm. it's good because every time I watch it, I notice another annoying thing that I do. Mm -hmm. And then I have to, and then on the uh, presenter notes on slide one of the next talk I give in all caps, it says, stop doing that annoying thing that you do. (laughs) So, uh, so it's, it's so worth it. Yeah. When I've, when I've watched my old videos, I definitely always pick up stuff and like, or like, Oh, that's just not even really true. I should really change this part because that's not a thing. Yeah. It's, it's worth the pain in my experience. Uh, so I want to uh, change topics just a little bit. Um, so this is kind of like almost an unfair question to ask someone who wrote an entire book about uh, computer science, uh, the Understanding Computation book. But uh, do you feel like there's a subset of really useful CS topics, computer science topics for the average like working programmer to learn? That's an interesting question. Um, well, basically, yes. <laughs> but that, that doesn't seem like the answer that you want. Um I think there is, but I also think it depends on what you want to get out of it. Mm. Uh, I think implicit in that question is a sort of vocational angle, which is like, what stuff should you learn if you want to be a better programmer? And Mm. I I think that that is the stuff that I am possibly not as interested in, although (laughs) I do think it has a lot of value. So there's a lot of, so an example would be just basic data structures and algorithms. I think like if, if, if your job is to write programs, then you're going to find it easier if you have a basic grasp of what the tools available to you are. You know, if you, and I'm not talking about sophisticated stuff. I'm just saying, you know, if you know what a binary tree is and what a linked list is and, you know, what's the difference between an array and a vector and a list and all those kinds of things, like not super sophisticated. I don't think there's any point in like learning all the sort algorithms or, or learning, you know, going too deep on all of that stuff and you know uh, a big o notation and things but i think that there probably is a a lot of low-hanging fruit if you if you gave me a room of 50 people who were self-taught developers who'd never done any academic computer science yep 
I don't actually know off the top of my head, but I'm fairly sure I could give them a list of 10 things, you know, that will make you a better developer if you know about them. And it, just because these things crop up all over the place, right? If, you've, mm-hmm. if, you, if you don't know more than the basics of trees, if, you know, if you, because everything turns out to be a tree, you know, everything, everything, every program you write is always full of trees. And so mm-hmm. if knowing a few like algorithms for traversing trees and what some of your options are for processing those things, I think, and that, that still falls under data structures and algorithms. But mm-hmm. I mean, to answer a different question that you didn't ask, I also I also think there's a different, and not necessarily disjoint set of things that are just interesting, and mm-hmm. I and, and I think that that's just as important. Like the reason why I wrote that book about, I mean, that, that book's all about computation theory, and basically, there's <laughs> when I was trying to sell that book to people, I would always say, you know, there's nothing in this book that will make you a better programmer. You know, this is this is not, and particularly trying to get O'Reilly to publish it. You know, a lot of the books they publish are extremely pragmatic in as much as, you know, I want to get a, you know, I'm, I'm a Perl developer, but I want to get a job as a Ruby developer. So can you sell me a book that will tell me everything I need to know about Ruby or about Cucumber or Aspect or whatever it is? You know, mm-hmm. a lot of their books are just, I need to know about X, tell me about X so yep. that I can say that I have that skill. And my book doesn't really have anything like that. And it. it's all very like, what I hope is interesting stuff. And the reason I'm bringing this up is not just to keep constantly talking about my book, but the reason why I wrote that book is because I think that every programmer should have some understanding of what it means, of what computation is, and what the limitations of computation are, and where computation comes from, and you know all of those things where it's like, it may not directly make you better at your job. You know, you may not be any more productive or you may not write code that is cleaner or more maintainable or you may not work more effectively with the other people in your team but i think it is nice to have a kind of (laughs) so so those are yeah i I could probably make two different lists of topics and one of them is like okay you're short of time and you just want to get a better job here is a list of things that if you know them you will probably you know yeah data structures and algorithm stuff you know basic programming language theory stuff i think is useful and Mm. you know just just a grasp of you know how programming languages work and after you type those five lines of java and click that button in your ide like what basically is happening there you know (laughs) what what does that button in your ide do Mm -hmm. um but i also think that that sort of enriching content is quite important you know for the same reason that the arts are important you know you don't Mm. no one gets a well very few people get a better job by you know, going to the ballet or going to the cinema or going to an art museum or something. But those things are a very important component of being a human being. And mm. they don't they don't necessarily have to be justified in a commercial way. And, that, and so that's how I feel about a lot of the content of computer science is that I think it is in the same category as all those other things. And I think that it's the intellectual beauty of that stuff is something that we as computer programmers are uniquely positioned to be able to appreciate. Like when I go to an art gallery, I do try to stand and look at paintings, but I'm acutely aware that I don't really know how to appreciate art on anything other than a fairly superficial level because I don't have the education. And so the reason why I spend so much time obsessing over these minutiae of computer science is because, well, this is one area where I do have the education and I do have the, you know, the ability to be able to appreciate what's so cool about Gödel's incompleteness theorem or whatever it is. And so that's where I get my, you know, I don't know what the word is, but that's where I get my satisfaction from is by learning about those things that that aren't necessarily going to make my Ruby method names any clearer, but they certainly make me feel 
more fulfilled in mm-hmm. my you know in my choice of career which is you know which does have value because it means i don't just flip my desk over and go and become a farmer right like mm-hmm. as long as, as as long as i can maintain that balance between frustration and enlightenment then i'll kind of be able to keep showing up every day and doing the typing in vim which is what it's all about yeah huh. so in tom stewart's world computer science is a, a liberal art and would be taught uh, like that alongside. I, I think so. Well, that, like that that Steve Jobs thing about being at the intersection of the liberal arts and, and technology. Like yeah. I, that, I think that that is a really interesting sweet spot. So that's where I think that stuff lives is like at that crossroads. Um, I think that's that's where I find all of the most interesting stuff. Hmm. Awesome. So we're, we're getting close to time, uh, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk about the book you're writing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm writing a book called How to Write a Web Application in Ruby. Um I've been writing it for quite a long time now, uh, which is which Did you is just misspell Rails because it's. <laughs> well, it's um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that book is it's it's become a weird project because I think I I announced it nearly two years ago on Ruby Rogues that I was going to write it, and that was before I'd written a single word. That was just to force myself to take it seriously. I figured if I if I said it on a podcast, then it would definitely happen. <laughs> um, but what actually happened is that because it's because I'm self publishing it it's just become, it gets lower priority than everything else. Hmm. So it, it lives in a folder on my hard drive. And every so often I will pop open the file and I will like move some stuff around and I'll write a sentence or two and I'll take a screenshot and I'll tweak the code and then I'll close it. And then it doesn't get any love for another week. So it's, it's, it's kind of a slow process. But the reason I'm writing that book is because I think it's interesting to, so this, is, this ties back to something I was saying earlier, which is that I think it's interesting to try and understand what is going on in the in the software that you're writing and the systems that you're using so that book is about trying to the first half of the book is let's write a web application just using ruby and the standard library so no gems no external dependencies what does it mean to be a web application and in in the case of the book it says well you know that's you accept incoming connections on on a tcp port and then you read http requests off of it and you parse out all the information and then you send a response back that's got html in it and all the right headers and all that kind of stuff so the first half of the book is just from nothing building up to a fully fledged web application that talks to a database and all that stuff and then the second half of the book is refactoring all of that messy code out of the way by replacing pieces of it with third-party code so by saying all of this stuff that's doing all of this http parsing and and header generation all that stuff is just busy work because you can use rack you know you can use uh, puma or something like that and all of this stuff that we're doing where we look at the contents of the http request and decide which part of the program we're gonna we're gonna send that request to we can just replace that with action dispatch from uh, from rails and this this thing where we're manually building up strings of SQL, we can replace that with active record. And this thing where we're, we've got a huge string with loads of interpolation in it to render some HTML, we can replace that with action view and stuff. So it's, it's partly a way of showing how web applications work under the hood by making you do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And, then it, and then it kind of segues into an explanation of how Rails works by showing you what each of the individual pieces are and how they get plugged together to make a working web application. So the theory is that it will help people who have maybe got into web application development by reading, say, Agile Web Development with Rails, and they know how to type belongs to in an active record-based subclass, but they've never really pulled that thing apart and figured out how all the pieces are plugged together. So I kind of want to show that in a in a slightly labored and complicated way. But, um, you know, I will finish it eventually, and then... 
someone will be able to look at it and tell me whether it's interesting or not. Have you thought about opening it up? Well, yeah, my friends, I, I'm pretty much every week I'm at the pub and complaining to my friends about how difficult it is to write something in a vacuum. You know, mm-hmm. when you're writing software in a team, the reason it's so addictive is because you get this constant feedback, right? You know, someone tells you about a feature they want at 10 a.m. and by 11 a.m. you've, you know, you've written all the tests and by 12 you've made all the tests pass and by one you've pushed and deployed and, you know, by two they're happy. Um, mm-hmm. It's very satisfying to get that feedback, whereas writing a book is just me in a room kind of sobbing at a text editor. So yeah, that people are always suggesting that I open it up. And I, I've i started thinking seriously about how to do that, because I think that would provide me with a bit more motivation to finish it. Yeah. Um, although it does provide me with motivation to finish it when people go to rubywebapp.com and type their email address in so that I can see that Google spreadsheet filling up with people who are interested. So that's a very subtle uh, call to action. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it being done. I'm yeah. looking forward to like shipping it and not having to think about it anymore. It says it will be published in 2015 here. It, so. it does it does say that, but what you can't see is that uh, that number has changed twice. So <laughs> <laughs> if, if you go to you know archive.org and check back through time, um, that's but, that's very yeah. honest of you, but not very good sales pitch. No, I know, I know. I'm gonna I am gonna finish it this. If it's not done by the end of this year, then I think I need to uh, resign myself to the fact that it's never gonna be done. So. I, yeah. I, I think you would probably get almost equal joy with just like shooting it or publishing it. Like, yeah, like right. Setting, I'm not going to do this or you yeah. know, get it out. Well, you know, there's a lot of sunk cost there. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to fall foul of the, you know, I don't want to sink twice as much effort in. But I, right. the, the, there's the a fallacy I'm, named after that, I believe. Right, so. exactly. But the problem, you know, the problem is that the reason why I wanted to write it is because I think it's a cool idea and it's it's only a small idea and it should be small and simple and fun, but I think it's good. So that's the thing that's preventing me from taking it out back uh, just yet is mm-hmm. that I want it, you know, I want it to exist in the world. Uh, but maybe the more I talk about it, maybe someone will just like steal that idea and do it better. And then, you know, that's 90% of the benefit <laughs> right there. So <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm not precious about these things. It'll be fine. Okay, awesome. Well, I think that's a, a great place to stop. Uh, thanks for coming on. It's been fun talking to you. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Do you have an upcoming uh, conference appearance that people could or that I could go see? Uh, no, I mean, I am speaking at the London Ruby user group next month. So oh. for for listeners in London, I'm going to be talking about relational programming in Ruby. So I'm I'm kind of excited about that. But other than that, no, I'm keeping my conferences have kind of eaten my brain over the last couple of years. So I'm taking I'm taking a break for the rest of the year. So nothing, okay. nothing big coming up. So our CEO Chad is in London right now. So maybe Chad. He is. I I, I met Chad at the at the last Elrug. So Chad, come to the next Elrug and, and watch my talk. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm/slash one fifty seven. Thanks for listening. 